0: We're going to continue on in this uh, chapter and I'd just love you to keep your Bibles open and um, I have to often remind myself when I'm reading scripture and studying that I need to slow down and also come down. And, um, and if you're like me and I believe there are some similarities we can often rush over scripture and miss important and vital details right now reading scripture can be like or a little like you know when you get in that airplane and you fly at about 40,000 feet and 700 k's an hour or plus and if you've got a window seat you can look out on a clear day and there before you you behold the vastness of the countryside especially when you're flying over a Australia, you can just see the huge expanse of plains, and and you see even the direction from forty thousand feet up of roads and rivers and mountain ranges, and um, you can trace heavily wooded forests, vast barren spaces. You do that because you've got a bird's eye view, and um, at that altitude and, and at that speed. A, a, this bird's eye view captivates you and, and what your eyes do is they, they drag in all the details even though many of those details are unseen a, a, and they form in your view a magnificent masterpiece right but how good it is to land we always love to land don't we when you're on an airplane and um, after all we can't live in the clouds forever The big picture view that we have from an aeroplane is always indelibly pressed in our mind. You're imagining that right now. All those of you who have been up on a plane, you're looking down and you see that great picture. It's indelibly pressed there. But how necessary for life and living for us human beings to get down, to slow down and come down so that we can get up close and personal and interact with all the details that are so necessary. That's absolutely essential. Well, brothers and sisters, when we read the scripture, we often also need to slow down and come down. Because we often think, and rightly so, of the majestic view of God's plan. We've thought about something this morning. You know, isn't it wonderful to be a Christian? God's redeemed us. You know, we were once sinners and now we belong to Christ. And we look forward to a coming day in heaven. God's wrath has been removed from us. Those are the absolute, essential, majestic view of the gospel that we all need. But we also need to come down and slow down, or slow down and come down, and get up close and personal with the details in order to worship him acceptably. And this is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to study one such vital detail that believers, every single one of us who belong to the Lord Jesus, that are called to practice, we're called to practice this vital detail. Because those who have become living sacrifices, verse 1, and are being transformed by the renewing of their minds, verse 2, and who do not think more highly of themselves than they ought, verse 3, And who are active and serving in the church, in the body life of the church, verses 4 and 5. And are using all their God-given graces, their giftedness that God has given them for the well-being of the body. God calls us to action, folks. He calls you people to action. And we see that in our reading today. So we've seen that. That's the big picture. Verses 1 to 8 is kind of a big picture deal. Okay? Not only of what being saved and and who we are and our minds that have been changed, but but how we're to interact with it. But now we get down to the details. But how on earth, in the mix of all those great, lofty theological fundamentals, do we begin? That's the question. How do we begin? How do we launch out and interact with these necessary vital details that we must interact with? Well, that's what we're going to slow down and come down to this morning. And we will see that the guiding foundational action that the rest of this chapter, by the way, the rest of this chapter hangs on is the essential detail of our love for others. In other words, our devoted love for Christ is the big picture, and the details of that love must be seen in our love one for another. So let's slow down and come down together and allow the Spirit of God to indelibly um, press this on our mind. That Greek word up there, by the way, don't get confused by it, it's the word agape. You Greek students will know that because we're going to be talking about that love today. The first thing that we see about the detail of our love is in verse 9. And we see that our love is to be sincere. Sincere is uh, the ESV translation. If you've got the NASB, it'll have without hypocrisy. Uh, and if you've got the King James Version, it'll have a big word with Without, or dissimulation. I had to look up in that dictionary to see if that word was a good word for translation. But okay, it's there and it does, does, it's an accurate uh, portrayal. So our love is to be sincere. So this is the first vital detail. The duty of a believer in Jesus Christ is that we obey this tremendous love command. Okay? This tremendous love command. And um, Now this word love describes the greatest feature above all else of the Christian life. Do you know that? Above all else, everything else, the greatest detail of the Christian life is love. Sometimes you wouldn't think so, but that's how it is. Jesus expressed this to the disciples, by the way. He said this in John fifteen and verse twelve. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, this descriptive love word that we have just in our translation as love has a—it's a special kind of love. You know, we just use love for everything. You know, see it on TV. I love you, and all this sort of thing. And and uh, but here in the original languages, it has a special meaning. And this is what that word was before, agape. This is agape love. And this agape love carries a meaning that certainly was not practiced in the Greco-Roman world when the Bible was written, this text was written. Nor is this kind of love, I might say, prevalent in our culture and society today. Why is that? The reason for this agape love, it is others orientated. That's the reason. Agape love is others oriented John MacArthur has got a good definition of this uh, agape love. He says, it centers on the needs and welfare of the one loved and will pay whatever personal price is necessary to meet those demands and foster that welfare, End quote. This agape kind of love is that which is selfless. It's a love that is devoted. It's a love that is loyal. It's a love that is is totally committed toward its object. It's a love that comes from God and actually it describes who God is. The scriptures tell us in 1 John 4, 6 that God is what? Is love, right? It says God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. It's the same kind of love that, that God commands us to love them with. This is a gap I love. He said in Matthew 22, verse 37, 39. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he goes on to say, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's the same kind of love also that Peter reminds the believers. And he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. For sincerely, brother, for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's Paul's admonishing the believers there. From a pure heart, from an undivided heart, from a heart that's not here and there and everywhere, but with a pure, focused heart, love one another earnestly. And further on, Peter says in 1 Peter four eight, above all. Again, speaking to believers, above all, keep fervent in your love, one for another, because what love covers a multitude of sins. Well, this agape love is what Paul here in our text today heads up the rest of the section that we have here it 's a love that is others orientated it 's selfless it 's sacrificial. And devoted. It's a supernatural love that we in and ourselves, by the way, will fail in delivering. It's not a human-engineered kind of love, but we can do it. We can love this way. You know why? Because when we were born again, when we came to Christ, the love of God was what it was shared abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us, as what Paul tells us in the book of Romans. And so therefore we can now sacrificially love as God loves. And how do we know that? Well, we know that God loves us that way because he says that he demonstrated his, what, his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We've had that verse already read this morning, Romans 5, eight. My dear people, as believers who long to glorify God... Without this kind of, of selfless love and practice, all the rest of our Christian virtues and services and gifts are worthless. Paul says agape is the greatest above all other gifts in the church. And, and without this love and action, all else we do is, you know what? He says a clanging cymbal in First Corinthians 13. In other words, you're just making a whole lot of noise with no purpose. who wants that? And then he goes on to say, without this love and action, all else we do is a clanging cymbal and it all amounts to nothing. Folks, though rare and often despised in our culture, this is the kind of love that we're called to demonstrate one toward another. Are we doing that? Are we doing that? No, you know, we're never, never, never going to reach agape love perfection. We're not perfectionists. But are we growing in this very area of Christ-likeness? That's the question. That's the challenge. Is my love for the brothers and sisters greater than it was last week or last year it needs to be if we're becoming transformed by the renewing of our mind and becoming more and more like Christ perish the thought that my love for the brethren is fading there's something drastically wrong when that happens are we pursuing this with willingness, earnestness and integrity by being transformed by the renewing of our minds through obeying the word of God You know, let us grow in love like this as we slow down and come down we will also note another vital detail in this love connection I call it it is to be sincere or our says without hypocrisy now this word sincere or dissimulation the King James Version has in there it simply means that there are there are no flaws in it. In other words, our, our agape love it is, it is to be a genuine godlike love. We've already got that. We've already had that, right? You know, in the ancient world, in the ancient world, when this text was first written, those who made and, and possibly sold their own pottery um, used the Greek word for sincere, or another word that we've translated without hypocrisy, they used it on their pots that they made. They stamped it on You see, when a clay pot was made, you know, they make it on the kiln, etc., and then they have to dry it somewhere, either straight dried in the sun, or someone sun was put in the kiln, whatever they wanted to do with it. And uh, when they made their clay pot, the drying process often saw cracks appear in the finished vessel. You can understand that, right? Heat sort of makes, really puts the, the pressure on things, and, and cracks often used to appear. Now, the retailer or the potter was faced with then an ethical decision He could either pick that pot up and say, well, this is no good to a customer, and rightfully smash it and just start again. Or, nothing ever changes, there were some dodgy guys around. They would fill the cracks with wax. And so this wax job, I call it a wax job, it was a process of camouflaging the cracks to fool potential buyers to purchase a pot that was not the real deal. Very astute buyers, by the way, would come along and hold the pot up, even if it was stamped or not, hold it up to the sun and then they would see the light through the cracks. But this is what used to happen. And so to offset this dodgy practice with a money-back guarantee kind of deal, retailers would come along and they would stamp their quality untampered pottery with the Greek word that we have translated without wax, or as in our English translation, sincere or without hypocrisy. This is where we get the word hypocrite, by the way, from. In other words, this would be like similar today as we would say 100% pure, we see on some of our products that we buy, right? Or all natural. Well, folks, Paul is telling us to love in a way that is without wax. That is pure, having no flaws, no selfish motives. For our love for one another. It should be sincere. It should be genuine. It's it's not to be like the actor who puts on a mask. To disguise and hide up. Who he really is. Or she really is. Not to be like that. Our love is to be without hypocrisy. So why does Paul. We can ask why does Paul have to. Get up close and personal with us here. On a subject. That is really personal. And can be very touchy and sensitive. Because I felt uncomfortable when I was reading this. Because my love and the quality of my love was challenged. I hope that yours is challenged as well. Challenged and changed. So why does Paul do this? I believe the reason is, folks, that we are so much better at claiming to love someone than we are at actually loving them. We can be so good at being acceptable and courteous and even slightly hospitable, but all the time, so often and too often, number one is often first and foremost. We sort of slip into a default mode. Too often, if our love for one another is going to cost us something, whether it be time or whether it be money, whether it be some difficulty or whether it be some situation that puts ourselves out, out comes the wax. And we try to cover up our flawed love with, with what? All sorts of excuses. We'll say things like, Oh, we'd love to help out, but... Or even, Oh, we'll pray for you. And a week later, no prayer gone. gone up. So often there is no action. And so this agape kind of love, it's, it's not merely sentimentality or feelings. No. It's more like what Bodhi Bochmann. I'm going to quote him again when he gives the definition of biblical love. It's more like this. It's an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to an action on behalf of its object. It's not sentimentality or feeling. This is agape love is dis- demonstrated in its sacrificial action. If our love for one another is, is anything else, folks, it's plain hypocritical, it's flawed with wax that camouflaging the cracks. My dear people, we have an enormous opportunity and a responsibility before God to be sincere in our love in this church. May our goal be that. Same goal that Paul had when he spoke to Timothy, where he said, the aim of our charge, he said to Timothy, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Our second point is our love is to discriminate. We see this in verse 9. This is the second detail of a believer's dedication to Christ. It's seen on the flip side of of his or her sincere love. And this is we will abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. This is on the flip side of agape love. What this is saying is that genuine sincere love, a love without wax, it will discriminate between good and bad, it will discriminate between good and evil. Now this goes against our culture, which and where we are increasingly bombarded with, with the need to, to tolerate different lifestyles and behaviours and beliefs. Right? We're getting that all the time. In other words, don't discriminate against that kind of lifestyle or that kind of behaviour or etc. etc. Because that's being judgmental. Just tolerate. But folks, if we are captured by God's love as we should be, we will clearly distinguish and discriminate between good from bad. Matter of fact, we will hate what God hates and we will love what God loves. In fact, Paul says that you cannot love if you do not hate. You may think, what was that? What Paul means here is that Agape love is not about burying your head in the sand over what is right and wrong. We get a lot of that, don't we? You know, sometimes we can even be guilty about that ourselves. You see, although our society has blurred the edges of right and wrong, agape love always makes a distinction, folks. Always. Why is that? It's because God's love is perfect and He is love and His love is perfect so therefore He by his own nature, hates evil. Understand, of course, that this divine love may choose to love in the face of wrong. And often it does. We can have a very wrong person who is committing very wrong sinful things or whatever, and we may choose to act. I mean, to say we divorce ourselves from that situation. Paul reminds us of God's love this way in the face of evil. While we were yet sinners, what did Christ do? He died for the ungodly. He didn't say, oh, that's evil, so I'm backing off and moving away. No, no. While we were yet sinners, Christ dies for the ungodly. But agape love never calls wrong right. It always distinguishes wrong from right. Apostle Paul knew this. He he knew, knew this distinction... That's why he wrote in frustration about about the way he lived himself. He said in a couple of chapters back in Romans 7.15, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He distinguished even in his own behavior what was wrong and he hated the wrong. Is that our responsive action to sin in our own lives, folks? Because if it's not, what can happen? I'll tell you what can happen. We we'll begin to justify our sin. And we can tend to take a light view on sin because our culture says it's okay. Or everyone's doing it. Kind of thing. And so what happens is our familiarity with sin begins to to breed contempt for sin's very true description. And so we go soft on sin and the evil that we should be hating becomes tolerated. That's what happens. My dear people, agape love does not allow us to flirt with sin, but abhor it. We must remember Joseph. He fled from sin, didn't he? He fled from evil and Potiphar's wife. Remember, she tried to seduce him, and he says, oh, "I'm having a bar of it." Paul warning Timothy on another occasion. About the many evils of the love of money. And how the, the many evils the love of money can bring. And he said, flee from these things, you man of God. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance and gentleness. Flee from these things. First Timothy 6 and 11. Folks, agape love is sensitive to evil. But it holds fast to that which is good. This love, this vital detail in our lives, it, it, it must not be insipid. It is to be active, it's to be dynamic. Therefore, when it's like that, it recognizes the difference. It's only when we allow God's love in us to distinguish the difference between evil and good will we hate what is evil and cling to what is good. The more we resist evil, the more we will cling to what is good. And then we can ask so, what is the good that we are to cling to? By the way, this cling word in your scriptures is the word that translates glue. In other words, we are to glue ourselves to whatever is good, which is. Philippians eight whatever is true whatever is honourable whatever is right whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is a good repute we're going to cling to those things like glue Paul instructs the believers at Thessalonica with the same when he says but test everything hold fast there's the word cling Glue yourselves to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5.21-22 But how do we engage in this love-hate relationship with good and evil? That's a very good question, right? Huh? How do we do it? Because we're human and we're, we're pl- pulled from here and there. We have so much being foisted on us. How do we do it? You're all familiar with the words of the Apostle Paul to the First Corinthians. To the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians Chapter 13, this famous love chapter. It says there that love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no records of wrong. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Did you hear verse 6? Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. Clinging to good is the same as rejoicing with truth, folks. What this means is that the truth of God's word must be on our regular menu. We must be clinging to the word of God, and it must be like glue to us. not something that's shoved on the shelf from one Sunday to the next. Reading the truth of God's word will strengthen us and will cause us to regularly evaluate our behavior, our activities and our pursuit of leisure in order to sort out from the good from the bad and pursue good and cling to it. That's what it'll do. But we also see in our text that our love has a wider dimension than our own personal involvement. We've certainly been reading about our responsibilities of what love is. But we will see that it is to be directed also to fellow members in the church. We see this in verse 10. What the apostle does here is he begins a list of 10 family obligations. You got that? 10 family obligations that believers are commanded to carry out within the local church. And this first one is such a lovely phrase that we all would do well to ponder its vital place for the health and well-being of our church. He says what? He says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. You see that? What an important, vital detail is that. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Now the word devoted here carries the idea of affectionate love not the kind of love that's based on personal desire or attraction no, no, but a devotion that is that's, that's inbuilt like that of a love that you see within family members now you may think, oh wow I know a lot of hate family members but I'm talking about the normal kind of a deal you know, where blood is sick and water kind of a love, you know you can beat me up and all sorts of things but don't you dare say anything about my family that kind of deal that natural inbuilt connectedness that you have in a family. This is the kind of love we have here. And um, the word brotherly love, it adds to, by the way, be devoted to one another. And what, how it adds to it, it describes the depth of that devotion. And, um, and it means that we're to have a, have a tender affection, a filial love for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's what it means. Now understand this folks, we as a church have the privilege and ability to be involved in something that is very unique in the world here. Why is that? Well you won't see this kind of love expressed toward one another in any other religion, in any other organization except those of the true Christian faith. You will see this kind of love in natural families, yes. You'll see the natural families where there are ethnic and family blood ties, etc. But outside of that, it's foreign. This is a unique brotherly love. It's another word, actually. It's not agape love. It's a little shift from there. It's called philia love. Philadelphia love. This is natu- a natural love in families. And you know what? It should be, and it's commanded to be, an outflow of our new natures in Christ. It should be natural in the church family here as well. You know, we're commanded to practice. You know what we're commanded to practice? We're commanded to practice. And I think the best illustration of this is seen between two guys. Okay? Remember Jonathan and David? Jonathan had such a kindred spirit with David that says, the scripture says the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. 1 Samuel one. These guys were more than just buddies, man. They were willing to lay their lives on the line for one another. It's a devotion of family love where trust and loyalty and integrity and friendship are the super glue that never lets go. But it needs to be worked out. Right? It needs to be worked out. Those of us who are married here know that the day we got married, the wedding day was wow, we were in the clouds, right? But we had to slow down, come down. We had to pay huge attention to the details, like working at our love for one another. It doesn't come naturally. This is why I love I've been married close on 40 years now, next year. And my love for my wife is stronger than what I was forty years ago. Deeper. And more affectionate. And more devoted. That's how it should be. You know, that's how it should be in the church family. Never should it be waning and getting less and less. Never. It's a devotion of family love that says, whatever happens, whatever happens, my family, my brothers and sisters in the law matter most. You got that? We don't see too much of that around lately. But this is what this means here. This is what the text means. Is that your devotion, my devotion, to this church family folks? Now you may say, well, no, that's way too radical for me. Surely it cannot mean that. Well, you're absolutely right. It is radical. Absolutely right. It's such a radical kind of love between peoples of different backgrounds and different ethnic groups and different ages like we have here in this little church. That's why Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. If what? If you have love one for another. Here it is. That's how radical this brotherly love is, folks. But do we believe that? Do we believe what Jesus said? Enough to obey his command, this love command. Do people know that we are disciples of Jesus through our glue-like, devoted love one for another? I honestly believe if we pursued this vital detail in God's big plan, we'd see more people seeing Christ in us. Which is why we're here, right? We're here to glorify Christ by being Christ-like. And being his disciples. But what in the local church does this really look like? Well, here's a clue, and it's been said before, and even in this chapter, it says that if we are truly devoted to one another, brotherly love, we will what? We will give preference to one another. Wow, there's another detail. See that? End of verse 10. That is, we will not think more highly of ourselves than we ought basically an explanation of verse 3 so the key detail of brotherly love folks as I said the other week is humility it's all about regarding one another more important than oneself Philippians 2 verse 3 the good old God first others second and self last the motto that I heard my wife tell my kids over and over again when they were young it's a good motto to learn. We need to respect one another for who they are in the Lord folks. We are commanded to outdo one another in showing honour to others. I wonder if we've ever thought like that. With a purpose of mind, well, I want to outdo everyone in this church by honouring other people in his church. We're so good at zeroing in, aren't we, on one another's flaws or weaknesses. But often very slow, very slow in honouring one another for accomplishments and perseverance and for a job well done. How sad is that? But we can pick it up, can't we? So let us learn that the vital detail of love in the local church is commanded of all those who belong to Jesus Christ. It's a love that's sincere. It's a love that will distinguish evil from good. It's a love that will be devoted to one another and it will show honor. Now, you may be failing in many of these areas. You may find yourself really dragging your feet and resisting all of this. But know this, folks, know this. If we will do, if I will do, what God is commanding us to do—that's when things will begin to happen. Absolutely, you will know and you will see a change of heart as God and grace works with you and your obedience to Him. And before you know it, your love will be sincere. It will—it will discriminate, and it will be devoted to one another. I trust these few words have been a help to us and an encouragement for us as we pursue love one for another.